All right, we're going to be going back to Revelation 21 today, Revelation 21, and Lord willing, we'll be able to finish this chapter and then have just one chapter left in the book of Revelation as we study together. Revelation chapter 21, we began this a couple weeks ago, we've been introduced to the new creation of the new heavens and earth after the old earth is destroyed. And God has now given us, or he will in this chapter, give us a new heaven, a new earth. And in the centerpiece of that is the new Jerusalem. And we've been studying this new Jerusalem the last week or so and looking at the different aspects of it. And so today we're going to actually focus on what will not be in this new Jerusalem or in the new creation. Uh, We'll call it what the new Jerusalem or the new creation makes superfluous, okay, or specifically what God's glory makes superfluous, because as we read, and here's where I want you to focus today, as we read, you'll see as John describes this new Jerusalem, it is all in the context of God's glory. Everything is compared and and put in that context of God's glory, because that is the centerpiece of everything that is part of this new creation, that is part of the eternal kingdom. So we read the first part of the chapter last week, so I want you to jump down to verse 22, and we're going to read from there to the end of the chapter. So verse 22 through 27, if you'll follow along, the Bible says, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it, and the gates of it shall not be shut, uh, shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter it into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Let's take a minute and pray before our message. Father, again now we humble ourselves before your authority and before your power. Lord, you've told us that your word is truth. We believe that your word is truth, and every word in it will come to pass as you've promised. And Lord, as we look forward to our future home with you in the eternal kingdom, Lord, we just ask that your Spirit would now give us understanding and wisdom as we read about that place that you promised us. I pray that you would guide us just to open our minds so that we can see the things that are important here. But Lord, may we see you first of all, as we just sang. And as we look to um, this time of reading your word, it's also a time of praising you and rejoicing with you. And so Lord, may we lift up your your name. May we lift up the work that you've done in our hearts and in our minds, and now do the work in us that you want to accomplish. Lord, I need your help. I need your strength. So fill me with your spirit. Give me the words to say so that we might hear from you today and be challenged by your word. And we'll give you the praise and glory for all that you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, as I mentioned, we're in the middle of John's description here in chapter 21 of the New Jerusalem. Remember, as we started this chapter, John sees the new creation, the new heavens, the new earth that God is making after the old earth and 
old heavens are destroyed after the millennial kingdom. And he sees this new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. This is the capital city of the new creation, if you will. And it is the final and promised home that Jesus promised his believers in John chapter 14, verse 3, when he said, I go to prepare a place for you. I believe this is it. Because it talks about here in Revelation 21 that John saw this coming out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. And this represents the dwelling place of the bride of Christ for all eternity. So this will be our home. Okay? So it will be the dwelling place of, of the church specifically. We know that because we are called the bride of Christ. Now, if other people are going to live there, uh, God can determine that. God hasn't made that perfectly clear here. In fact, we saw last week how the possibility exists that Israel, saved and redeemed Israel, will actually dwell on the new earth in the land that was promised to them as an inheritance forever. But they will come to the new Jerusalem to worship because that is the temple we'll see today of the new creation. And so Israel may live on the earth, but come to this place, this new Jerusalem, to worship. And today we're actually going to be introduced to another group of people that also will probably be living on the new earth as well, that also will come to the new Jerusalem to worship. But we know this heavenly city is the home of the church, just like Jesus promised us. Now, here in Revelation 21 and going on into the beginning of chapter 22, we know that John is receiving this vision of this new creation that God is going to create, and specifically of this new Jerusalem. As we look at chapter 21, we see at the beginning as that John is taken up by an angel to a high mountain to view the city. And so as we read through 21 and then get to 22, I want you in your mind's eye to see the perspective as it changes. And it's almost like John starts on this mountain, he sees the city coming down, and then the angel guides him closer and closer and closer to this city, and he describes more and more detail. And then eventually, when you get into chapter 22, he's inside the city, and he describes what he sees inside. Okay? So that's what we're reading here about this vision that John gets of this new Jerusalem. But the most prominent aspect that he repeats over and over through his descriptions is the glory of God, the light of this city. And it comes from the glory of God because God himself will dwell there. We read that in verse 3. And so here's the focus, is God's glory in this eternal kingdom, in this new city, in the new creation. It's all centered on God's glory. And everything else is related to that. John describes everything else in relation to the glory of God here. And this theme continues on into chapter 22, where, again, John is now seems to be inside the city describing what he sees there. Now, there's one other emphasis, and that's what we're looking at today, also in light of God's glory, are what is not in this city, as I mentioned. And it's not there because God's glory is there. And we read through these things, you see four things that are not there. First of all, there's no temple. Second, there's no sun or moon. Third, there's no night. And fourth, there's nothing that is unclean or accursed, sinful in other words. Now, remember, we've already been told back in verse 4 of chapter 21 that there also will be no tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, and no pain 
in this new creation. That's all gone because those are things that are associated with the curse of sin. And since there will be no sin, no instance at all of sin in the new creation, those things associated with sin, crying, death, mourning, all of pain, those things won't be exist in the new creation. We, we saw that in verse 4. And it's because, as we read in verse 5, Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, I'm the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega, and he will make all things new. So in this new creation, everything is new. There is some semblance to what used to be in the old creation, but the sin part of it's gone. That's been cleansed by God himself, purged out. And so everything now is not about man, it's not about the inhabitants, it's not even about the creation itself, it's about who is at the center of that, and that is God himself. And his glory then resonates through this entire new creation, and that's how John explains it to us here. So we're going to start back and down at verse 22 as we finish looking at this external view that John is getting as he approaches this city, and then he proceeds to the internal view in chapter 22. And keep in mind that everything that John is describing here again is in the context of God being there and his glory being the overwhelming presence of everything that he sees. Okay, so first in verse 22, he says that there is no more temple, and I saw no temple therein. No temple therein. Now, we talked about this a little bit last week. The temple represents the location where God's presence resided on earth, and therefore it became the place where people went to worship. When we went back to the Old Testament, we saw in the tabernacle, that became kind of the, the temporary place for Israel to go to worship as they traveled through the wilderness. And God's presence was made known there in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. And so when his presence resided, the people would come and worship him in the tabernacle. That translated into the temple. When Solomon built the temple, it became a permanent structure, but that represented the presence of God. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence would rest on the mercy seat. And so the people would come to the temple. In fact, even after they were given their land, the people would come from miles and miles every year to worship at the temple because that's where God's presence was. And it's true even in the millennial kingdom, as we studied, that uh, Jesus will rule from the millennial temple, and that's where people will come to worship him in person. So this temple represents the place or the location where God's presence resides, and that is where we come to worship him. In the New Testament, especially for the church, that changes. Because the presence of God is not a location. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 tells us that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit because he resides in us. And so now it's no longer a building, it's a person or people. And so we are the temple of God as his church. So it's not about a location because the presence of God is with us and therefore Worship happens all the time, as it should. But as we get into the eternal kingdom here, we have a different story. Because God's presence, verse 3 tells us, will reside with his people. Now, 
He resides with us now, but it's a spiritual residence. His spirit is in us, and he communes with our spirit. In the eternal kingdom, we will be there in glorified bodies, and I know God is a spirit. He doesn't have a body. Jesus Christ has a body, and so he represents, in essence, the body of God. But God in his fullness will be with us in person, and we will commune with him face to face. Okay, that can't happen in the bodies that we possess now. That's why we have to be glorified. So this new Jerusalem, where God's presence is, becomes the temple. And this new Jerusalem, the city, is the dwelling place of God. So now that represents the temple for the entire new creation. And so there is no need for a specific temple because God's presence now resides with his people. And that's all that's going to be left at that point is God's people. All right? So... He says there's no temple because it's not necessary. The temple is where God's presence is. And therefore, God's presence and God's glory specifically exudes throughout the entirety of the new creation. And we'll see that again as we continue uh, working through this. Now, there's one thing I wanted to add here. When we talk about the New Testament church and the presence of God being with us, if the presence of God is with us all the time, in our spirit, then our worship should be happening all the time. And so the question is, how often or how much do we actually worship God in the lives that we live apart from church? And the question is even how much worship happens in church. If our minds are wandering, if we're only there because we want something or because we need to prove that we're good Christians or whatever. If we come for any other reason than to acknowledge God's glory and God's presence in us, and the fact that he deserves that worship, then it's not really worship. But as a believer, since the Holy Spirit's in us, that worship should continue all the time. And Paul said that in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Sacrifice was the representation of worship for the Old Testament saints. They would present a sacrifice. They would offer the animal. They would kill it. The blood was sprinkled on the altar, and it represented a dying to self, and the blood represented the blood of Christ. So Christ became the perfect sacrifice for us, so we don't do that. But Paul says, offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. So presenting our bodies, our lives, in essence, as a living sacrifice is the essence of worship for us today. Now, do we do that on a regular basis? Do we offer ourselves to God every day as a living sacrifice in worship? And he says, holy and acceptable. In other words, we're not good enough to offer ourselves to God, and yet God can make us good enough to be acceptable in his sight. So do we want or are we willing to offer ourselves for God to make us holy and acceptable servants to himself. Because again, we can't offer anything to God that's worthwhile. And so he has to make it in us, make us holy, acceptable unto him. And then the verse ends, which is your reasonable service. And the word rendered service there is actually the same Greek word which the word worship comes from. So you could read that verse saying, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable worship. 
And so the way we worship God is by offering ourselves as his servants to be made holy and acceptable in his sight on this earth, in this life. And then the service that we render in our, day, our everyday life becomes our worship. And so when we look at it from that context, it behooves us, I think, to evaluate or reevaluate how we live and say, am I offering this true worship every day that I live? Because the Holy Spirit's here. God is with me. So there shouldn't be a time when we're not worshiping him. So the New Testament temple, as I said, is the people. And the worship should come from here because this is where God resides. And it shows forth in how we serve him in our lives. When we get to the eternal kingdom, that worship will just continue as we serve the Lord and as he serves us. But it has to start here because God's presence is already with us here. So John says, In the eternal kingdom, in the new Jerusalem, there's not a temple because God's presence represents the temple. And God's presence will dwell in the new Jerusalem, but it exudes throughout the whole new creation. Then he goes to the second thing that is not necessary or the thing that God's glory makes superfluous. The second one is the sun and the moon. We saw a little bit of this last week as well. These are not needed in the presence of God, verse 23, because the glory of God or the glory of the Lord provides the light and the, the, the uh, lamp uh, is, I'm sorry, the lamp of the city is the lamb, okay? So John's very clear here and he says, well, there's no need for a sun or moon because God's glory lightens everything. It, it goes into every corner, it shines into every heart, it, it illumines everything. Now, I mentioned again last week, Jesus said, I am the light of the world, okay? And he said, his light shines to, in our hearts to illumine us, to bring us the truth. Light in Scripture represents truth. We're not talking about a spiritual light here, although Jesus is the spiritual light and he will continue to be even in eternity. But here we're talking about Jesus, the glory of Jesus Christ. It says the lamp of the city is the lamb. So God's glory exhibited through the person of Jesus Christ will be all the light that we need. We don't need a sun or a moon. They're not needed, God says. And so no other lights of any kind are needed because the brightness of God's glory illumines everything here. And as we saw in the description of all the gems and the jewels and the pearl gates and the the clear gold that the whole city is made of, God's glory shines right through all of that. So it's not that it illumines everything, but it also reflects through everything. So God's glory shines through and illumines every aspect of this entire city. Now, if you go back to creation, the sun, moon, and stars were given to us on this earth for light. Remember, Genesis 1 says, God said, let there be light. That wasn't the sun, moon, and stars. That was light to the earth. Before that, the earth existed in darkness, or that original creation was in darkness. God gave us light on day one. And then later on, he gave us the sun, the moon, and the stars. Now, why? How could there be light but no sun, moon, and stars, scientists will ask, because God is light. God existed all the time. He's shown his light on the earth before the sun, moon, and stars existed, 
But then he created the sun, moon, and stars. Now here's, I believe, the point of that. And John Phillips calls the sun, moon, and stars substitutions which take the place of God's glory for light. That's why people worship the sun, the moon, and the stars on earth because they don't need the light of God. But they're just substitutions. They're not the true light. We know the sun is a star. It will burn out if it's left to burn long enough, as all stars do. They don't last forever. But God is the only permanent light that can exist. But here's the problem. As human beings, especially as sin-cursed human beings, we cannot exist. We cannot see or live in the glory of God directly and live. And we've, we, you see that all through Scripture. Okay, Isaiah was ushered into the throne room of God in Isaiah 6. And because he saw God, even in a vision, because he saw God, he fell on his face and said, I'm not worthy to live. Same thing happened to John as he saw the resurrected and glorified Jesus Christ here in Revelation chapter 1. Okay, so anytime someone realizes that they're in the presence of God and his glory is revealed to them, the automatic response is absolute humility, and they just go prostrate on their face. That, that's the reaction of the human being to the glory of God. And so we could not live if we came into contact personally with God's glory in these bodies. That's why the sun, moon, and stars are necessary to provide light for us. But in the eternal kingdom, we can live in the eternal presence of God because we have glorified bodies. Sin is removed. All the curse of sin is gone. Now we can literally behold the glory of God face to face, the Bible tells us. And we won't die. In fact, we'll never die. And because we can see the glory of God face to face, there's no, ne- no need for sun, moon, and stars. So there's no temple. There's no sun and moon because they have no place in the heavenly city where God himself is the centerpiece. And then third, in verse 25, John says, here's another thing that's not necessary or that's not going to be in this eternal kingdom. There's no more night. Now, we'll see this next week, Lord willing, that it's repeated in chapter 22, verse 5. And by the way, there being no more night or no sun and moon in the eternal kingdom is contrast to the millennial kingdom. There will be a sun and moon and stars in the millennial kingdom. There will be day and night cycles, just like now in the millennial kingdom. So we know this is not talking about the millennium. This is talking about the eternal kingdom of God, when we enter into eternity after the millennial kingdom. But he says there will be no more night. Now, how do we define night? Night is defined by the period of time in which there's darkness, right? The sun is not up, the moon comes up. The moon is not a light, the moon just reflects the light of the sun. Okay, to give us a little bit of illumination so we can see and not bang into things as we try to traverse in the darkness. But night is defined by darkness. Now, darkness is actually not a thing. You can't say, well, darkness is... Okay, well, we define it by the lack of something else. Darkness is nothing more than the lack of light. Okay, there's light... And when light is gone, then we call it darkness. And so when God talks about no more night, he's saying there's no more darkness because light is ever present, because that's the glory of God. 
The glory of God will be ever present in eternity, so there's no darkness, and therefore there's no night. Now, darkness is used by God to illustrate man's sinfulness. And again, I said light represents truth. And so man's sinfulness, the darkness that we live in as sinful creatures, represents the lack of truth, right? What is sin? It's when we disobey God, when our lives exhibit a lack of truth. In fact, Romans chapter 3, verse 23 tells us that all have sinned. Why? And how? All have sinned and what? Come short of the glory of God. There it is, okay? That's the light that has to exist in a person's life in order for them to glorify God or literally reflect his glory in their lives. So when God's glory is not reflected in the lives of people, it's called sin, represented by darkness, because they have a lack of light. In fact, 1 John 1.15 tells us that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Where God is, there can't be darkness. And so where God is, there is no night. When we get to eternity, there will be no sin. So darkness, both spiritually and physically will be eliminated. And John says, there's no night there. And so darkness here means no light. And John says, there's no darkness or no night in the eternal kingdom. But if you go back to verse 24, we also read this. By its light, that's the light that's coming from the city, the glory of God exuding from this city, by its light the nations will walk. Now, this gives us not just an indication of God's glory coming out of the city. It's not just about there being no night. But last week I mentioned that there's some commentators who speculate whether there will be a sun and moon and stars, possibly, for the earth. Because there's a new heavens, right? There's a new heavens that God is going to create. Maybe there's a new sun, a new earth, a new moon, uh, new planets, new stars. I don't know what God's going to create in that new heavens. But it's not necessary for the new creation. That's the point. And here, verse 24 says, by its light, that's the light coming from the New Jerusalem, the glory of God shining from the New Jerusalem, by that light, the nations will walk. Now, there's a lot into that little phrase, the nations will walk. Okay, but just on the face of it, let's take it this way. The nations are the people that are going to inhabit, and I'm talking about glorified, eternally saved people who God has translated into his eternal kingdom, but these are people who will be on the new earth, okay? And by the glory of God, they will walk. In other words, they'll be able to see where they're going because of the glory of God. Again, no sun needed. So I have to disagree with those commentators who speculate, well, there, there's going to be a new sun, a new moon, and the daylight is, you know, and darkness is going to happen in cycles on the earth just like it. I'm sorry. It doesn't say that here. Okay? I think the important truth to understand here is that God's work of redeeming a lost creation is a much greater spectacle of his glory than his original work even of the innocent creation, okay? Because we had God's perfect creation, and it was destroyed by sin. It was tainted, and God knew that. 
It wasn't like God was surprised when Satan came down and Adam and Eve fell. He knew that was going to happen. That was his plan. And so even in the original creation, which he called good, which was perfect, it became corrupted by sin. And yet God's glory then is not shown as much. It is shown in his creation, but it's not shown as much as it is in God redeeming that lost creation, that corrupted creation. Okay? Let me give you this illustration. If you go and buy a new car, and I, or if I, if, what if I came in to church? I said, I bought a new car. I, you know, I want to show everybody after church. Don't, don't go look at my car right now. It's got dents. It's dirty. I haven't washed it. Okay, I don't have a new car. But if I came in with a new car and I said, I want you to see my new car. Okay, and I went out and this beautiful, shiny new car sat in the parking lot. And I showed it off to everybody and everybody, you know, oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. How much would you think of me? Well, okay, so he had the money or he got a loan, he went and bought a new car, big deal, okay? Now, I'm not trying to minimize God's original creation, but if I brought a brand new sparkling car into church and I said, hey, everybody, I'd like you to go look at that car because this was in the junkyard and I restored it from scratch, and then you go out and look at it and you say, wow, that's an amazing work. Okay, that's a poor illustration, but it gives us a little bit of an indication what I'm talking about here. God's glory is demonstrated to us much more and in a much deeper way through his restoration of a broken and corrupted creation than just in creating an innocent and perfect creation. Okay, and therefore, when we look at this eternal new creation, with the glory of God being the centerpiece of it all, there's nothing else to distract from it. Then we understand what God's trying to teach us, what God's trying to show us here. And as God, if God's going to dwell among his people, as verse 3 says, and if only those who will live in the eternal kingdom will be God's people, and if the glory of God will be seen wherever God is, then there will be no place in the new creation where God's glory will not illumine. So it's all about God's glory. Look around today. Does this creation exude God's glory in this way? What well, does if you look for it? But mankind basically today is all about their glory. And so when you look at the earth today, we have tributes to man's accomplishments all around us. And God is played down and suppressed in unrighteousness. It won't be the case in the eternal kingdom. It's all focused on him. So verse 24 demonstrates clearly the new earth doesn't need a sun or a moon. Not just the new Jerusalem, but the new creation itself, the new earth specifically. Now, the Greek word for nations, I'm going to talk about this just for a second. The Greek word for the nations will walk is actually the, the uh, Greek word ethnos. I'm sure you've heard that word, ethnos. It's the same word which is translated Gentiles throughout the New Testament, and I think there's meaning in that here, okay? If you read through the New Testament and you come across the word Gentiles, that's the Greek word ethnos, same word that here is translated as nations. The nations will walk. So let's read that, and it says the Gentiles will walk in the light of it, okay? In the light of God's glory coming from the New Jerusalem. To give us the right perspective here, I want you to remember and understand that in Scripture, Scripture consistently divides 
the total of Earth's population throughout history into three groups. Go all the way back to creation. God created Adam and Eve, and then there was descendants that came from them all the way up to the flood. Okay, Then we know Noah and his family were saved. And then from the flood up through Abraham, basically you have one race up to the Tower of Babel anyway. Then the, the nations were divided by language, and they scattered throughout the earth. Okay, So those nations up to the time of Abraham are referred to as ethnos. Gentiles, that's all we had on the earth at first. Then Abraham is called by God, and God creates, literally, a new race at that point through Abraham. Those and all of his descendants and all the promises that he gave to Abraham and his descendants, those are called Jews. So now we have two divisions on the earth, biblically, Gentiles and Jews. Now we read all the way through the rest of the Old Testament with those two divisions, and they're very clear, if you pay attention, Gentiles, Jews. Jews are God's chosen people. Gentiles are those of other races, nations, if you will. Then we get to the New Testament in Acts chapter 2. What happens in Acts chapter 2? Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and the church, the bride of Christ, is born. Now we have three groups, Gentiles, Jews, and the church. Now you say, well, wait a minute, what about the church? Because the church is made of Gentiles and Jews. True, but Paul very clearly stated that in Christ there is no Jew or Gentile. In fact, there's no man or woman. There's no young or old. There's no distinctions. We're one body, okay? So we can't call ourselves Gentiles or Jews in the body of Christ. We have become the church. And so that's the third group that is distinct in in Scripture. So now we have the Gentiles, we have the Jews, and we have the church, three groups. Then we get to the rapture of the church, and we read about this in Revelation, okay? Who disappears at the rapture? The church, that group is entirely gone from the earth at that point. So who's left through the tribulation period? Jews and Gentiles. Okay? Jews and Gentiles. So when we look at what we see here in this chapter, talking about this new Jerusalem and the new creation or the new earth, we have to look for all three of those groups. The church, the bride, that's an easy one. They dwell in this new Jerusalem. That's the city called the new bride or the bride of Christ. Jews, we looked at a little bit last week and said, well, they could be because it could be in the New Jerusalem because you have the gates that are named with the 12 tribes of Israel. But what about the promise of God that they would dwell in their land forever? Okay, so I assume or I believe that Israel will live on the earth in that land that God gave them as a perpetual inheritance forever. That's where they live. And they come, as I mentioned, through the gates by tribe to worship in the temple, the New Jerusalem. Okay? Now, what about the third group, the Gentiles? Here it is. The nations, ethnos, will walk by the light of it. Now, does it say the Gentiles will walk by the light of it in the New Jerusalem? No, it says the Gentiles will walk by the light of it. Are they going to live in the New Jerusalem? I don't know. But it's very possible that they will live in the earth, and I'll get to that in just a second. So if we assume that the Jews are in their land on the earth, 
that these Gentiles, and what I mean by Gentiles is not Jews and not the church. So we have to look at the time periods that are covered here. These are all believing Gentiles, by the way. So we go all the way back to the Old Testament. Any believers who were Gentiles, we call them Old Testament saints. They're in this group. We omit the period of the church because there's no such thing as Gentiles in the church. We're all one body. We get to the tribulation. There are tribulation saints. We saw that in Revelation, which are Gentiles. I think they're in this group. And then we have a whole bunch of people, Gentiles as well, who are born and saved during the Millennial Kingdom. Gentiles. Now, all of them are going to be translated to the new creation. And I think they're all going to be translated to the new earth. And here we have this word, ethnos, nations. We'll walk in the light of God's glory as it shines from the new Jerusalem to the new earth. Okay? So I think these nations are Gentile believers from the Old Testament, from the tribulation, from the millennial kingdom, who God now has living on the earth. And they come and worship in the new Jerusalem, just like the Jews do. Now, verse 24 goes on and it says this, All the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it, or into the city. So if we have Gentiles living on the earth, who are these kings? Now, again, this is evidence that people are living on this new earth. So it says, all the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And I think these new kings are those that Jesus appointed to rule on the earth in the millennial kingdom. And maybe some afterwards, I don't know. But we know that Jesus said that he would appoint rulers from his people in his kingdom. The church will be part of that. Israel will be part of that. Saved believers, other saved believers through these other periods of time, probably as well. And when we're not, we're not really talking about two different distinct reigns of Christ when we talk about the millennial kingdom and the eternal kingdom. It's really just, and I hate to use this word, a remodeling. It's not a remodeling, a recreation of the kingdom that he already rules. So it's the same people. It's the same kingdom. It's just new now. And Jesus said, I will make all things new. So he's still the king. That authority hasn't changed. And I don't think the authority of those he appoints in the millennial kingdom is going to change. And so therefore we have kings that are appointed by Jesus Christ on the earth, the new earth, who are going to bring their glory into the city, the new Jerusalem. Who are these kings? Well, I mentioned a couple of them, but I can give you at least one of them that I believe. In Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 25, this is a prophecy of the millennial kingdom, but it says, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. Talking about Israel, shall be their prince forever. Remember those words? They don't span just the thousand years of the millennial kingdom. And if David is going to be appointed as the king over Israel on the earth during the millennial kingdom, that indicates that that rule as a king on the earth in the eternal kingdom will continue for David and other kings as well. So that's these kings that are bringing the, their, their glory, and that, that's the, the, uh, the actions of worship here. Now, it focuses on kings because kings are the ones in control. It's not just general people, little people, the, the inhabitants. It says the kings. Why? Because Jesus is the king of kings, the Lord of 
lords. That's what that title is talking about. And these kings and these lords and everyone else will come in to the New Jerusalem where the presence of Jesus resides and will worship him. Now it says it will bring their glory to them or to it. The kings will bring the glory of the nations. It doesn't mean they're going to bring food or gold or silver. It's not about material possessions. 1 Corinthians 3 talks about how we build on foundations. If we build on the foundation of Jesus Christ in our ministry in this earth, then what exists is gold and precious, uh, gold and silver and precious stones. Okay? He's not talking about physical treasures. He's talking about spiritual treasures. In Revelation 2 and 3, we read where Jesus told the people in the churches, those seven churches, if you're overcomers, I will bring you into my kingdom. I will give you crowns and a new name. And here we have overcomers represented by these kings who are bringing that glory that Christ has given to them as overcomers and presenting it to Jesus Christ in worship because they deserve they they know they don't deserve it. All right? Take a poll right now. How many of you deserve to go to heaven? I'm not going to raise my hand. Okay, anybody who thinks they deserve to go to heaven is not going to be there. Overcomers, remember, are those who are humble, who realize their spiritual bankruptcy and their need of Jesus Christ. And so because those people, these people, have served him, not just in their earthly lives, but now through the millennial kingdom, Christ gives them rewards. He gives them glory and honor. And here, they're bringing that glory back to Jesus Christ because it belongs to him in the first place. That's the essence of worship. And this will be a time of continual and perfect worship, just like we saw back in Revelation chapter 4 as we entered the throne room of God with John And he says in verses 10 and 11, the four and 20 elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him that liveth forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are were created. It's all about Jesus Christ. All the glory that exists, regardless of who is handling it at that point, belongs to Jesus Christ. And here this picture is all that glory that even God and Christ have given to these people because of their overcoming now is returned to the Lord of glory. See, God's glory can't be outshined by anything that man can do or offer. And so now even the glory of the overcomers will be given back to God in eternal worship. And this, this is what defines worship giving God the credit, the glory for what he deserves, which is everything. Why are you alive today? Because of God. Why are you saved today? Because of God. Why are you part of this church and able to worship and able to sing praises and able to fellowship and and edify one another? Because of God. Everything you have, everything you are, every breath you take is because of God. And so he deserves all the credit for everything. 
And that's the attitude of worship. We don't come in here because we're going to prove to God that, oh, I come to church and worship every week. God, I'm a good Christian. We come to church and worship because God deserves everything that we have and everything that we are. It's to his credit. And so it's nothing more than getting together and doing it as a church, what we should be doing every day of our lives individually anyway. Here we get to do it together. And if God deserves all the glory, all the glory, then how much do we deserve? Nothing. See, and that's the attitude of humility that defines worship. God deserves everything. I deserve nothing. Now you're ready to worship. And that's what's happening here in eternity for eternity. Verse 25 says, The gates of the city shall never be shut because there is no night. Now, during biblical times, city gates were left open during the daytime to allow people to come in and conduct business, come in and worship at the temples, not just Jerusalem, but all the cities of the world had you know temples to, to uh, heathen gods or whatever. And they would open the gates so people could come in, conduct business, visit with relatives, worship at the temples, etc. It was no different for Jerusalem. It worked that way as well. But at night, when the sun went down and darkness covered everything, they would shut those gates tight and lock them to prevent any undesirables or criminals from coming in because darkness was their modus operandi. They loved to work undercover. And that's, again, sin is represented as darkness. And the Bible tells us men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. So darkness represents evil. And so people knew that. And so the gates would be shut to keep evil out. And if you were left out when the gates were shut, you better pray for your life and find somewhere to hide until the sun comes up. Okay? The gates of this city will never be shut. Why? Because there is no night. And there's one one other thing. And this is the last one. There is no sin, which means there are no sinners who want to come in to destroy things. The only people that will want to come into this eternal new Jerusalem are glorified believers who live on the earth, on the new earth, who want to come and worship the Lord. That's the main purpose for coming to the new Jerusalem to worship in God's glory. And that is given to us very clearly in verse 27 at the end of this chapter. And there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. We already were told that in verse 8. This is just a repetition of verse 8. Verse 8 says, the fearful, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murderers, the whoremongers, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Jesus has already taken care of that judgment and of those people. They're all gone. And I don't mean annihilated. I mean in the lake of fire for eternity where they're eternally separated from God's presence and his glory. And so none of those people can be here. None of those people will be here. And so there's no need to shut the gates. And there's no night 
for evil to operate even if it could. And so the gates of the city are always open because there's no night and because these wicked people who want to disrupt the harmony of God's kingdom and who want to take the glory of God for themselves, they'll all be gone. Now that fact alone should remind us now and will remind us then that none of us will deserve to be there in the first place. If God says all of those people are going to be gone, they're going to be cast into lake of fire for eternity, none of them will enter into this kingdom. We need to remember who we are. Romans 3 is a great reminder. It says, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none that understandeth. There's none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are together become unprofitable. There is no good that no none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues have they used deceit. The poison of asps is under their list lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace. Have not they known there is no fear of God before their eyes? That describes you and me. That's what we are. Except for Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 7 tells us it's only because of God through Jesus Christ that we have hope anyway. It says, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, But according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost, which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. It's all because of God. So none of us deserve to be in this kingdom. And all of us are on that list. And except for Jesus Christ, we will all end up in the lake of fire for eternity. But see, that's where the glory of God comes in. He has shined his glory through us and made us righteous through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And the hope that we have as we read about our future home is not because of us, it's because of Jesus Christ. So like I said, anybody who thinks they deserve to be there is not going to be there. The only thing that can possibly exist in God's new creation and in this eternal kingdom are those things that have been made new. Like Jesus said, all things. I have made all things new. That includes the people. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creature. Not because of what we did. Christ has made us new. And so now we qualify because of Jesus Christ to be in the eternal kingdom. 2 Corinthians 5 goes on, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And then he goes on in verse 18, All this, all this new stuff is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Only new people through the blood of Jesus Christ, are going to be in this eternal kingdom. There's no need to shut the gates. And so those gates will be open all the time, 
for people to continuously come before God's presence face to face to give him their glory, to put their crowns at his feet, to worship him the way he deserves, not to prove to God that they're good Christians, but to prove that God, who is over all and in all and through all, is the only one that matters. That's the eternity that we're going to worship, that we're going to uh, live in. And so if you don't like worshiping the Lord now, you're going to hate the eternal kingdom. Because if you don't like the worship of God now, you're going to hate the eternal kingdom because you're not going to be there. You're going to be in the lake of fire. So let me leave this with you. If you have not been made a new creature yet by the grace of God, it isn't too late. The fact that you're still alive, that you can still hear my voice, that you can still do things on this earth, that means it's not too late. I use the mantra, nobody's hopeless until they're dead. So it's not too late if you're not a new creature. As long as you're alive, God can still save you and give you a new life in him and make all things new in your life. If you've already experienced that transition to becoming a new creature in Jesus Christ, then I want you to remember in 2 Corinthians 5, 17 and 18, it ends with this, and his, uh, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. In other words, you might be on your way, but there's a whole lot of people around you who aren't. And that should be important to us because that's what we've been called to. Now, our job is not to populate the eternal kingdom, but our job is to invite as many people as we can and give them the ticket to get there. And that's found in the gospel. We, this morning, as, we, as I close, this morning in Sunday school, we were looking at Acts 28. It was a story of Paul when he's shipwrecked on the island of Malta, and as he's gathering firewood and throws it into the fire, a poisonous serpent jumps up, bites him on the hand. There's a whole bunch of the native people on the island, heathens, who are watching this. They know it's a poisonous serpent. They are watching him intently for a long time, just waiting for him to drop dead. And nothing happens. And Paul doesn't scream out to God, God, why would you allow this to happen to me? Why did you let me get shipwrecked? Why did you let me get bit by a serpent? He just goes about his business serving people. While these people watch him, expecting him to drop dead. We are the only gospel that many people will ever see. So does the worship of Jesus Christ in your life today exude that gospel to other people without saying the words? We need to give them the words, but they are watching us now. Are we living in worship so they see Jesus Christ and the glory of God in us now? And are we giving them the opportunity to be able to be in the presence of the glory of God then? Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us this challenge. We have a promise, a great promise of a home that you're preparing for us, and it's beyond anything that we can imagine. Apart from sin, in the presence of your eternal glory and light, always being there to worship with you and to worship you. And Lord, we just 
look forward to that, but Lord, make us aware of those people around us who don't have that hope. And if there's any here that don't have that hope today, Lord, I pray that you would convict them of their sin, of their pride, break their hearts so that they kneel before you and give you the glory that you deserve as you save them. Lord, we thank you that you are the all-glorious God, that you care about each one of us, and we can trust you to do what you're going to say. So thank you for this encouragement today, for this challenge from your word. May you use it to change how we live, to challenge us in how we think, so that every part of us might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, which is your purpose. We love you, and we ask you to teach us to love you more. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Our clothing-